Let's make sure our Bibles are open to John chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Black Pew Bible in front of you. We're going to be on page 903. If you're not very familiar with reading the Bible, the chapter numbers are the big numbers. So when we say John 17, we're going to the big 17. And then the verse numbers are the little numbers. On the morning of April 9th, 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German Lutheran pastor, was stripped of his clothing and led naked into an execution yard where he was hanged by the neck until his death. His offense was the attempted overthrow and assassination of the Hitler regime. This is one of his final prayers. In me there is darkness, but with you there is light. I am lonely, but you do not leave me. I am feeble in heart, but with you there is help. I am restless, but with you there is peace. In me there is bitterness, but with you there is patience. I do not understand your ways. But you know the way for me. Lord Jesus Christ, you were poor and in distress, a captive and forsaken as I am. You know all of man's troubles. You abide with me. When all men fail me, you remember and seek me. It is your will that I should know you and turn to you. Lord, I hear your call and I follow. Help me. I wonder how you would talk to God if you knew that your life would soon be taken from you. In this morning's text, we find Jesus on the precipice of death. His hour has come. He will soon be betrayed, abandoned, and hung shamefully on a cross. He will suffer the wrath of God for sin, and he will die. Now what you need to know is that in the mind of Jesus, there is no doubt that these things will come to pass. There is no uncertainty in the heart of Jesus regarding what is soon to come. He knows what the prophet Isaiah foretold of him and his life and his ministry and his end long ago. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Now, since chapter 13 of John's gospel, Jesus has been preparing his disciples for his departure. But now, as as the cross fills the frame of his heart and mind, as the end draws near, Jesus stops talking to his disciples And he enters into a conversation with his father. This conversation, this prayer, is often referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. This prayer is the longest recorded prayer in all of the Gospels from the mouth of Jesus. And in some sense, this prayer sort of serves as a, a summary of the rest of John's Gospel up to this point. 
In the first five verses of this prayer alone, we rehearse most of the main themes of John's gospel. The hour of his death, the oneness of the Father and the Son, the shared glory of the Father and the Son, the obedience of the Son, the mission of the Son, the eternal life of the Son, the election of the sheep. And again, this is all just in the first five verses. Now, there are many ways to skin a cat and probably just as many ways to preach through the high priestly prayer. But I have to tell you that I think the sort of classic structure is a classic for a reason. Uh, The high priestly prayer has traditionally been broken down into three sections. Uh, If you don't see this in your Bible, you could even bracket it so that you could have this for reference next time you read through it and do your own devotionals. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. Then in verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. And then verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for the church or for all of his future disciples. So that's what we're going to do for the next three weeks. This week we're going to start in verses 1 through 5. Then next week we're going to go to 6 through 19. And then the week after that, verses 20 through 26. Let me pray and then we will dive in. Father God, what we need most this morning is not a pick-me-up or a pep talk. What we need is not a moral lecture. What we need is to behold your glory. And as we behold you and who you are and what you have done for us in the gospel, we need to be changed by what we see. So help us to focus Help us to linger. Help us to hunger to see you more. And help me in my weakness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So right off the bat, what I want you to see about Jesus' prayer is that it's, it's not quite like the prayers that we pray for ourselves. Right? When we pray our, for ourselves, it doesn't quite sound like this. Jesus' prayer, it, it's really half petition and half after action report. If you're like, well, I don't know what that is, Sean. Don't worry. Let's start with the petition. The petition is simple enough to understand. We all know that, right? It's to ask for something. And so Jesus, in this prayer, he's asking for his former glory to be restored. We're going to talk about that later. But the other half is this after action report, which uh, is, is common military nomenclature. So they do this in the Army and the Marines, Probably not in the Air Force or the Coast Guard, you know. So like in the military we do this. And, uh, and so I'm pretty proud of that. And so what you do is after a mission or after a training op, you have what's called an AAR, after action report. And it's where you stop and you evaluate how did the mission go? How did the training go? Did we succeed in that which we set out to accomplish or not? And so in this morning's prayer, Jesus does that in his conversation with the Father. You can see that in verse 4. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, Father, I I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Right? Mission accomplished. I did it. You see what I mean when I say we don't really pray like this? I mean, maybe you do. I'd be interested to know if sometimes when you talk to God, you go like, hey, remember that thing you told me to do, God? Mission accomplished. I did it. Yeah, I I don't really tend to do that. Now, another way that we can look at this prayer would be to notice 
the book ends, right? So in verse 1 and in verse 5, which we're going to look at at length, Jesus addresses both his own glory and the glory of the Father. Now here's just a little Bible reading tip. Whenever you find bookends like this, something at the beginning of a text and then something at the end of a text, it kind of tells you what the text is all about. So that tells us that the the first third of Jesus' prayer is obviously about glory. Okay, now, what we've done here is I've just sort of given you a couple of different ways to look at the prayer as a whole, but now let's, let's dive into the prayer and the contents of the prayer itself. But before we do that, I want to address a, a, little, a little factoid here that John gives us. It's, it's, I think it's interesting and challenging uh, for our prayer lives. John tells us right at the very beginning in verse 1 that when Jesus prayed, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. Look at that. When Jesus had spoken these words, which refers to the the sort of speech that he has given right before this, it says, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father. So this is how Jesus begins to pray. Eyes open. This is not the only time that we're told that Jesus prays with his eyes open lifted to heaven. We find the same thing in chapter 11 at the tomb of Lazarus as Jesus talks to the Father. Additionally, we read that Stephen, when he's being stoned to death in Acts chapter 7, he lifts up his eyes to heaven before he communicates to God in his final moments. Even more interesting, I think, is that in the early church, this is how many Christians, if not most Christians, prayed from what we can tell. They prayed standing Uh, pews didn't exist until about 400 years into church life. So if you're like, man, it was hard sitting through that hour-long sermon, well, just thank the Lord that you're sitting, okay? (laughs) But early Christians prayed with standing posture, arms lifted, eyes towards heaven. Now, we don't pray like this. You know, when, when we go to have a prayer together as a church, what's the first thing you do? You bow your head and you close your eyes. Does this mean that the way that we pray is unbiblical? Well, I don't think so. And this is where it's important to remember that not only should you interpret a text in its context, but you also have to interpret what the Bible teaches about such things throughout its entirety. You see, throughout all of Scripture, we see all different kinds of praying posture. We see people praying kneeling, lying down, standing. We see people praying with their eyes open, as is, in the, as is the case here. And we also see people praying uh, with their eyes closed, as is, is the case in Revelation 19, Acts 10. You can go and look at those later. Now, this may seem like a sort of silly thing to hang out on at the beginning of a sermon about the glory of Christ, right? I mean, just this huge, magnificent subject, the glory of Christ, and here you are talking about whether or not we should pray with our eyes open or closed. Isn't that a little silly? Well, actually, yes, it is a little silly, which is kind of why I want to talk about it, because sometimes Christians get hung up on silly little things like this, you know? Uh, you, could be, you could come up to me after service one day and say, Sean, I saw someone praying with their eyes open, and I might just say, that's fine, you know? And how did you know their eyes were open, right? Ah, the dad move. Right? The most important thing for us, brothers and sisters, is not whether we're standing or sitting, whether our arms are lifted or our arms are at our side. The most important thing is that the eyes of our hearts are open, ready to receive and behold the glory of Christ. Amen? Amen. All right. Now, let's get into the content of the prayer itself. 
Jesus begins by addressing his prayer to the Father. And he wastes no time. He gets right to the heart of the matter. He says, my hour has come. The hour of my suffering has come. Now this, this phrase, the hour, I'm sure you remember because we've talked about it like 15 times so far in John's gospel. It refers to the time of Jesus' appointed suffering. His death, his burial, his resurrection. The hour for Jesus is a time of darkness and suffering and horror. This has been the constant theme of John's gospel up to this point. The hour is coming, the hour is coming, the hour is coming. And Jesus says, well, now the hour is here. But what's really interesting is that in this prayer, Jesus connects his hour of suffering to glory, to light, to life, to joy. He says, the hour has come for my glory. And those two things don't seem like they go together in our minds. Hence what I said earlier in my service leading about those two songs that we sang back to back. It, it, they don't seem to resonate. How do these things fit together? Well, it's, it's actually quite simple. The point is, is that glory only comes through death. This is the case for Jesus' ministry. His glory only comes through his suffering, humiliation, and death. He must pass through the latter in order to arrive at the former. This matters for you in the way you live your Christian life because the servant is not greater than the master, right? If Jesus had to pass through the darkness to enter into the fullness of the light, you too will have to pass through the darkness to enter into the glory that God has prepared for you. The glorious creatures that we will one day be, that we are even now being shaped into by the power of the Spirit, these glorious beings can only come into existence once we have passed through the corridor of death. What do you think baptism symbolizes? Well, it's newness of life, resurrection life. Well, yes and amen, but before you come out of the water, what must you first do? descend into the water. And what is that a picture of? It's a picture of us dying with Christ. Paul says in Romans 6.4, we have been buried with him. We have died with him by baptism into death in order that. So what that means is that whatever comes next, it doesn't come unless the death comes first. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There is no glorified Christian life unless there is first death. Now look at verse 1 again. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that, or that could also be translated as, so that the Son may glorify you. Once again, I want to encourage you, Circle that so that, underline it, bracket it, highlight it, do something so that it sticks out to you when you come back and read it again. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, he, he's asking to, to be glorified so that he can share his glory with the Father. So that he can give all of the glory back to the one who gave it to him in the first place. 
Now, in order to understand what's going on here, we just need to make sure that we're all on the same page about what glory is. Glory is one of those Christian words that we sort of throw around a lot, but maybe we don't necessarily understand. We can use it in a sentence, but if somebody said, what's the definition of that, we might struggle. Now, listen, I've actually given you that little spiel right there about, like, what is glory? We may not understand, like, five times so far in John's gospel. Right? This would be the, normally be the place where, if we were talking about glory, I would break it down, give you the Greek and the Hebrew, and I would try to conceptually communicate what this is. But uh, for the sake of this morning's sermon, so that I don't repeat myself too much, I'm just going to simplify and summarize. Jesus, in the context of this prayer, is just asking the Father to make much of him. Father, make much of me. That's what he's asking for when he's asking to be glorified. It really is that simple. You see, friends, Jesus is a really big deal. He is very important. He is God, the second person of the Trinity, the eternally existent one. But when he came to earth... When Jesus added a human nature to his divine nature and took on human flesh, he sacrificed some of his glory. That is, he set it aside for a time. He allowed himself to be treated as if he isn't that big of a deal, as if he isn't that important, as if he isn't that beautiful. You see, friends, when when God is around... Everyone, everywhere, all the time should be making a big deal of him. But that's not what happens when Jesus comes to earth. Because he empties himself of some of his glory by taking on human flesh, what happens when he shows up? Well, people sometimes get excited about him. And then that excitement pretty quickly fades. People seem to kind of like him. They seem to be mildly enthusiastic or intermittently enthusiastic about him. They tolerate him. And then at worst, they even on multiple occasions try to kill him. They did all these things but glorify him completely. They did not. And so, here we are. At the end of Jesus' life and ministry... And Jesus is communicating with his father and he says, Dad, it's time. You sent me here on a mission. And part of that mission meant me going undercover. That meant me setting aside the fullness of the splendor of my glory so that I could save this world. But Father, now I am ready for you to restore me to the fullness of my glory. Now, you may be wondering, uh, you know, this idea that Jesus is being restored to glory, it communicates that there's a glory that he once had, right, that he's being restored to. Well, where am I getting that from? Well, I'm getting it from the text. Just look at verse 5 with me. Just go down to verse 5. Jesus sort of says the same thing in a different way. This is, he bookends this section of his prayer. And now, Father, glorify me. Okay, we got that. That's what we heard in verse 1. In your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So, the glory that Jesus is asking for from the Father is the glory that he once shared with the Father 
before the world existed, before all of creation, before the incarnation. It is the eternal glory of the triune God. You know, sometimes, um, sometimes children have a hard time comprehending that their parents had a life before they were born, right? Like, you, they hear stories about mom and dad and about how they used to, like, ride motorcycles or, you know, they hitchhiked or they went on crazy adventures and they go, really, my parents? Yeah, buddy, your parents, right? They used to be cool. But when, when you think about your parents as a kid, you, you only see them one way. You have a hard time seeing them how they were before you existed. That's kind of what's going on here with Jesus as we're trying to think about the glory that he had before the foundations of the world. I mean, just stop and think about this. When you think of Jesus, how do you think of him? Well, you probably have a picture in your mind of what he looks like, right? And, and that picture in your mind is probably not accurate. I, I don't know what the picture, the mental image you have of Jesus is. It could be like the passion of Christ Jesus. Uh, it could be like the storybook Bible Jesus. Whatever image you have in your mind, that's not the real Jesus. But you always picture the incarnate Jesus. You picture Jesus God in the flesh, the God-man Jesus. And that makes sense because, well, the vast majority of what Scripture has to say about Jesus, it says about him in the flesh. So when we think of Jesus, we always think of the God-man. But this morning's text reminds us that there was a time before the world existed, before you were alive, when Jesus was just God. Well, you shouldn't say just God. He was God, but he wasn't the God-man. He was God, the second person of the Trinity, eternally existent with the Father and the Son. Before the incarnation, before the hypostatic union was formed, Jesus was there, 100% God, sharing fully in the glory of the Godhead. And now in his final prayer, Jesus talks to his father and he says, Dad, I'm ready to get back there. I'm ready to be restored to that glory. That in and of itself is a little bit of a mind bender. But we're not done yet. There's another layer here. You see, when Jesus takes on human flesh, which that itself is hard to wrap your mind around, he actually increases his glory. What does that mean? How can Jesus increase his glory? Well, the answer is found in Hebrews chapter 2. Turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 9. The author of Hebrews says, <clears throat> But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, and this is referring to his diminishment of glory, his sacrifice of glory, his incarnation, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death 
for everyone. Now, what, what this is saying is that there, there's a kind of glory that Jesus had before the foundations of the world. That's the eternal glory, the Trinitarian glory. That doesn't increase. It doesn't decrease. That's what it means to be eternal. It just always is. It can never be anything else. But then the author of Hebrews says that there's this other glory, the glory that Jesus, the God-man, is crowned with because as man, he suffered. He was obedient to the will and call of the Father, even unto the point of death on a cross. This is what Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 calls the glory of obedience. This is the glory of John chapter 17, verse 2. The glory that the incarnate Son receives for completing the Father's mission, right? That's what Jesus says there. He says, I've completed that which you've sent me to do. I'm doing it now. I'm about to go to the cross. It's going to be done. So this is why Hebrews chapter 2 says that Jesus is crowned with this glory, right? Crown is a bestowal. It's a reward. It's a prize. In the ancient world, an athlete finishes a race. He wins the race. The crown is put on his head. What does that signify? You've done everything you need to do to be the best. And so we glorify you for that mission accomplished. And this, this glory, which I don't know what theologians might want to call it, bonus glory, extra credit glory, it is forever added to the glory of the eternal Christ. That the glory that Jesus possessed in eternity's past. And let me just give you an example of what I mean. At the end of the book of Hebrews, the author ends on this, 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 praise, this praise note, right? This doxology. And it says, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This glory that Jesus is going to receive forever and ever, amen, that, that glory is not just the eternal glory that he had with the, with the Father and with the Spirit in eternity's past. It is also the glory of obedience, the glory of suffering and death, the mission accomplished glory that he receives as the incarnate Son. This is what we mean when we say that his glory is increased in this way. Now listen, this stuff is kind of tricky. Whenever we start talking about the dual natures of Christ and the Trinity, even as a pastor, I'm always like, oh, I'm so close to saying something heretical. I've got to be careful. But let me just stop and tell you that although this, this, this stuff is tricky, it's also eminently practical. And I think you're going to see why a little later in the sermon. But for now, I want you to just go back to verse 1 and look at the second half of that verse with me again. It says, after he lifted up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. What I want us to see here is that Jesus is not asking to be restored to his former glory for selfish reasons. Right? He's not like, man, uh, I really miss my glory, and I just kind of, I want to go back into that, you know, in the same way that when I'm out of town for a little while, and I'm sleeping on somebody else's bed and somebody else's pillow, which is never right, I'm just like, oh, geez, I can't wait to be back into my bed with my pillow and my house with a thermostat, thermostat set at exactly 70 degrees, 
That's not what Jesus is saying here. Although it is an entrance back into every good and comfortable and, and, and amazing and beautiful thing that he knew before the foundations of the world. But what he's saying here is that the ultimate aim of him being restored to his glory is so that he can then glorify the Father. His love for his own glory is utterly selfless in the end. You know, the, the desire to share glory, it's a kind of glory in itself, is it not? The desire to share your own glory. Just think about this. Think about a man who... Uh, is being honored with a Lifetime Achievement Award. And in his speech, he's standing up at the podium before everyone who's there to honor him for a life well lived. And he says, you know, I really couldn't have done any of this without my wife. You know, I'm standing up here, but she's not. And, and honey, please stand up and take a bow. Let everyone recognize and acknowledge the way that you've contributed to this. What is the husband doing there? He's taking his glory, and he's giving it away to his beloved. Now, what does that do for the husband? When everyone sitting there watches him, listens to him do that, do they think, oh, this guy, what a loser. No, there's something about him giving away his glory at the height of his glory that makes everyone go, we love you even more. You're even more glorious than we thought. So there's a kind of glory in Jesus' desire to give away his glory. And if your head's kind of like, like I'm, I'm struggling too. There's layers here. Now, you've probably heard some human version of this glory-sharing language before. You've probably heard it from like a Christian musician or actor or athlete Right? The, the categories could be expanded, a Christian plumber, but for now, this, these three will probably be the ones that you recognize most often. And, and here's what this human version of like glory sharing, glory deflection desire, here's what that sounds like. Lord, make me the best quarterback in the, in the world. Glorify me so that I can make you famous on the football field so that I can give you back the glory, right? Glorify me. So that I can give you back the glory. And that is the right thing to say. It's like exactly the right. It's the perfect thing to say. If. If we could ever really mean it. If we could mean it with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind. Like Jesus means it here in John 17. Then that would be the perfect thing to say. Make me so rich. That I can spend all my money on missions, right? You know, even if John Piper said that to me, I'd be like, I don't know, man. I don't know if I believe that. I don't know if I trust you when you say that. Your desires aren't that pure. But the thing about John Piper, who, by the way, gives away all the proceeds from his books for fear of the corrupting influence of money, one of the reasons why he would never say that is because he knows that his heart is sinful and that even if there is a pure desire to receive glory from God so that he can give the glory back to God, that, that good desire is always going to be tinged with something sinful, something selfish, because at the end of the day, sin makes us all glory hogs. We want the spotlight. It should all be on God, but we try to stick our head in. We try to steal some of that from him. 
But what I love about what we see here in Jesus' prayer is that he understands that glory, like every other good thing in the universe, food, possessions, time, family, whatever it is, he understands that glory is most well used when it is shared with those we love. So, now we have to go back to the very beginning of verse 2. Now, if you're in the ESV, the first word in verse 2 should be since. S-I-N-C-E. Go ahead and circle, underline, highlight that word. It's, it's, it's significant. It's tremendously significant. It's so tremendous that i, I got to unpack this a little bit. we got to sort of take what's going on here. we got to take it apart and then put it back together again. So, Jesus begins... By saying that the Father has given him all authority, right? Since you have given him, and he's referring to himself there. And just so you're wondering, Jesus can refer to himself in third person. You can't. Uh, Since you have given him authority over all flesh, right? So Jesus begins by saying that he has received all authority. Well, what on earth does that mean? Sean, you've been talking about how Jesus is God and he's been eternally existent as God. How does Jesus receive authority? Isn't that what it means to be God, that you inherently possess all of the authority? Well, that's a good question. It's kind of complicated. And because this is a sermon and not a seminary classroom, allow me once again to just simplify. Remember, Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And as fully God, he has had all of eternity from uh, all of authority from eternity's past. But as fully man, Jesus receives authority. The Father gives the human, I don't want to say side because that's not biblical, it's actually heretical, but gives Jesus the God-man authority from heaven. If you have more questions about that, buy a systematic theology. Now, more important for understanding the heart of Jesus' prayer this morning is what Jesus says next. He says that he has been given authority over all flesh. Which, by the way, all flesh just means the human race, okay? He's been given authority over all humans. Why? So that he can give them eternal life. This is so important. This is so important. What we see here is that God's good design for authority as highlighted in the ministry of Jesus, is that life might be given. That's what authority exists for in this world. The reason why God the Father gives God the incarnate Son authority is so that He can use it to give life to those who are dead. So let me just pause here and let me just highlight a general theological truth that I think Christians, particularly in our context, in our day and age, need to remember And for some of us, we need to learn it the first time. Here's a good, general, theological truth for your life in this world. This is God's purpose for all of authority. Authority exists to give life. Kings and congresses and potentates alike, wherever there is any kind of authority, God has given that person authority so that they may use it for the peace 
and prosperity and flourishing and life of those under their care. That's what Romans 13 says. The civil magistrate, kings, congress, potentates, wherever you live, it may look different, but the civil magistrate is God's servant for your good, for your flourishing, for your prosperity, for your life. So the authority that a husband has in marriage is for the flourishing of his wife. The authority that parents have with their children, that authority is given to them so that they can give their children life. The authority of pastors in the church is for the strengthening and maturity of the church, which makes what all of these false pastors who are out there fleecing the flock, it makes what they do so heinous and corrupt in the sight of God. It's not just that they're misusing a, a, a good thing in a bad way. It's that they're inverting its purpose. You're taking life away from those that you're supposed to be giving life to. Now, the reason why we need to hear this message is because many of us, most of us, are naturally suspicious of authority. I would even say that as Americans, most of us are inclined towards just a natural setting of like 30% rebellion against authority. doesn't matter who it is, where it is, why the person in authority is saying or doing what it is they're saying and doing. Because we're Americans, we're just like, there's something in me that says I need to push back against that. And then listen, there's a lot of good reason for this inclination in us. Ever since the fall, authority has been abused. Right? Just think about what that word abuse means. Ab, miss, use, use. Right? So it's the misuse of authority, the wrong use of authority. You add to this the fact that as Americans, our entire political philosophy is built on a healthy suspicion of the consolidation of authority, which I think is actually good. I think it flows out of a biblical anthropology and a a right understanding of sin. And then on top of all that, our experience comes in behind these things and tells us, yeah, authority is dangerous. It is something that's difficult to trust because... We all know of a policeman who's used his badge and gun for wicked purposes. We know of politicians and pastors and parents who have done the same thing. But friends, none of that should change the fundamental idea in our mind that God's good design for this world is that it function according to structures of authority. Authority is good in and of itself, even in this broken world. Even in this broken world, God still gives out authority according to his sovereign decree, and he causes it to be used to give life to many. A little point of application for those of you who are in positions of authority. And by the way, you may be tempted to tune me out there and say, well, that's not me. I don't have any real authority. If I had to guess, if I were to just sort of take any adult in this room and look at your life, I would say that God has sovereignly placed you in some kind of authority somewhere in your life. If you're a member of this church, you have authority. If you're a husband, you have authority in your marriage. If you're a wife and a mom, you have authority with your children, right? If, I mean, we just go on and on, right? But most of us have positions of authority. So for those of us who are in positions of authority... Everyone, you should know that you are never more like Jesus than when you are using your God-given authority to give life to those under your care. 
And you should also know that you are never less like Jesus than when you are abusing your authority to try and take life from those under your care. If you're a boss and you just kind of don't really think much about how you treat your employees, oh, friend, you've misunderstood the Christian life. If you're not thinking about how you can serve your employees and, and use the authority that God has given you over them to give them life, you, you've misunderstood like one of the greatest gospel evangelism opportunities that God has given you. There's something about the way that you can use your authority to give life to your employees that will cause your employees to consider the words that you have to say to them about Jesus more carefully. We could say the same thing about parents and so on and so forth. Think about how this applies to the church. You remember the words of the Great Commission? Jesus tells the apostles, and then therefore the church, that he has received all authority from the Father, and that he is sharing that authority with the church so that we can carry out the mission that he is giving us, which is really just finishing his mission. Now, when Jesus gives us this authority, it's kind of like a sheriff giving a badge and a gun to a deputy, right? Do you guys know that's how a deputy works, right? You remember Andy Griffith? Andy Griffith was the sheriff. Then he had the deputy whose name was? Okay. And then, I actually didn't remember. You guys saved me. Nice. <laughs> and then, you know, Barney, uh, he, you know, he's out there. He, he wants to help. He wants to be useful in the community. But who's going to listen to Barney? Right? Probably nobody. So what does the sheriff do? He says, all right, you're with me. Here's a badge. Here's a gun. I'm giving you some of my authority so that you can go out and do good, so that you can give life. Now, another aspect of this needs to be considered, uh, a really significant aspect. Um, those of us who have been hurt by authority, those of us who have been abused by authority, which, again, if I had to guess, I would say would be almost all of us at some point in time in our lives, right? There's no one in this room who is untouched by the misuse, the sinful use of authority. But I have to, I have to exhort you this morning to not press into that, to the place where you can never trust authority again. If you do, it, now listen, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's not going to be a process to, to work back from what you've suffered. I, I, I've been there myself. But if you can never get to the place where you can trust authority again, then you're never going to get to the place where you can receive all of the blessings of life that God has for you. Because the way that God has designed this world is that his blessings flow to us through structures of authority. So, just consider one example. When it comes to salvation, surely, Sean, you're, you wouldn't say that salvation comes through a structure of authority. Well, it absolutely does. In order to be saved, you have to not only believe that Jesus is God, but you also have to believe that he is Lord. What does that word Lord mean? It means king. He's not only our savior. There was a big controversy, a theological dust up in the 70s called the lordship controversy where people were trying to say, no, Jesus is our savior, but he doesn't necessarily have to be our Lord. Wrong. You have to recognize Jesus as king with a kingly authority in order to be saved by him. You have to not only believe this in your heart, but confess it to the world with your mouth. I submit to the kingly authority of the risen Christ. And I know that may be scary. 
But you have, to, you have to recognize that Jesus is not like these earthly kings. He is not tainted by sin. His heart is not corrupted with selfish desires and conceited ambitions. Jesus is the kind of king who wants more than anything else in the world to use his rod and scepter to give you life. That's what the point of this prayer is. Father, give me the glory so that I can glorify you. How is Jesus going to glorify the Father? Well, he is going to use all of his authority to give life. Now, in closing, there are two more things that I would like for us to see in this prayer. The first is, once again, at the end of verse 2. Look there with me. After talking about receiving authority over all flesh... He says, to give eternal life to whom? Well, to all whom you have given him. Now, we're going to talk about this more next week and the week after, like a lot more. But I just wanted to point it out to you today. I want to sort of whet your appetite. I want to encourage you to maybe study this in your devotional time this week and prepare for what we're going to be diving into in the next two weeks. But what I want you to see here is that Jesus has been given authority over all flesh, but he does not say that he's going to give life to all flesh. He has authority. He could do it, but that's not what he's going to do. Instead, it says that he is going to give life to all whom the Father have given. Hmm. That's interesting. And then the last thing I want us to see this morning has, has less to do with the content of the prayer and just more to do with the nature of this prayer itself. I, I want you to consider this. Jesus knows with certainty that his death is coming. The hour is near. And that causes him to pray. Isn't that interesting? I mean, Jesus knew that he was going to die. He knew that his death would bring him glory. He knew that his death would bring the Father glory. He knew all of this with a kind of certainty that you and I have never known about anything. Just think about how bad the Republicans got their predictions, you know, how wrong their predictions were about this last election. It was as wrong as the Democrats were in the election of 2016 with Donald Trump. You know, I mean, just... We just say things like we just know, like we just know for a fact. We, we speak with a kind of certainty and confidence that is the vast majority of the time utterly unfounded, right? That's the story of my life. Often confident, seldom correct, right? This is the way we are about things. But Jesus, when he's thinking about his future, he knows without a doubt that he is going to die. You would think that this would lead him to say, I don't need to pray. This is a foregone conclusion. This has been the plan since before the foundations of the world. Before the, the foundations of the universe were laid, I was back there talking to the Father like, yeah, okay, so this is what we're going to do. Here's the mission. Here's the plan. Now the hour has come. Everything that he's been planning for all of eternity is coming to pass. And yet, rather than feeling like, ah, I don't need to talk to God about this, he feels like, no, I have to talk to God about this. I have to go to the Father in prayer. 
You know, it, it, it's often been said that a belief in a, in a reformed or a, a high view of God's sovereignty, I don't really care what you call it, but a belief that God is massively sovereign and that we are utterly not. Okay, whatever you want to call that. It's been said that a belief in this kind of sovereignty makes us weak in things like prayer and evangelism and missions. Why would you pray if you already know what God is going to do anyways? Why would you evangelize if you already know that people are going to be saved because they were chosen in eternity's past? That sort of thing. Well, the reason why that doesn't work is because of texts like this. The reason why it doesn't work is because that logic doesn't hold up in the mind of Jesus. That's human logic. That's the way you think. That's not the way Jesus thinks. You think, I don't need to pray about it because it's going to happen. Jesus thinks it's going to happen, so I have to pray about it. That's a difference, a big difference. As Christians, we don't pray because the future is uncertain, although that is also a good time to pray. But we, we can pray because the future is quite certain. You know, we don't pray because we think that our prayers will bring the will of God to pass. We pray because we know the will of God has been established from eternity's past and that it will infallibly come to pass and that God is inviting us to participate in this grand drama of redemption that he is enacting throughout history. So here's what a good trajectory for your Christian life should look like in light of this truth. We, by the Spirit's work, become more like Jesus. We think more like Jesus about things like this. And then the more we become like Jesus, the more confident we become in his sovereign plan. And the more confident we become in his sovereign plan, the more quickly and confidently we go to God in prayer to ask him for every good thing that he has promised us. Now, I don't want to end on a low note, but I I do want to ask a tough question. Is it a tough question for me? Is it a tough question for you? It's for all of us. Is it possible that we are not praying as much as we should be? or with the kind of certainty that we should be because the certainty of the finished work of Jesus just sort of rests lightly on us? Is it possible that the the bottom... Of course, I know that you believe. That's why you're a Christian. And we've said very often that, you know, it's it's not the, the quantity of your belief or even sometimes even the quality. It's just the mere fact that you believe that saves you. So I know that we believe. But I'm asking, like, is it possible that, like, The gospel hasn't really come to bear on your heart and mind. One of the most common things that I hear from Christians is like, yeah, I think I got saved at around age 12, but then I was reading this book or I was at this conference or I listened to this sermon on the internet, and then the bottom really fell out for me. I really understood the gospel a little bit later. I went through this tragedy or I had this experience in my marriage, and then everything snapped into focus. And the gospel that I knew, now I really know. I wonder if we don't pray because perhaps we haven't really experienced that. I say that, and I've had that falling out moment where the gospel becomes extra clear, extra real to me. And I still don't pray like I should. We need grace. We need grace, brothers and sisters. We need the grace of forgiveness for when we fail to go to God in prayer with confidence, and we need the grace of his Holy Spirit to do better in our hearts, to compel us, to drive us forward in prayer.
And the promise of the gospel is that he will do that. Even when we don't know what to say, he will give us the words. So let us close by just meditating on the certainty that we have in the gospel. God is really there. And he really loves us. And he really sent his son to give us life. And his son really did die to save us and to bring us back to himself. And Jesus really did accomplish all of the work that the Father had given him. He really did live a perfect life of obedience. He resisted all temptation. He never sinned. He honored the Father in all things in ways that you and I have never been able to. And rather than receiving the crown of glory that he should have received for living a life like this, he received humiliation and death on a cross. And then he really got up out of the grave, victorious over sin and hell and death. And then he really ascended up to heaven. And then he really sent his spirit into our hearts to strengthen us for the task that he has given us. Jesus is truly at the right hand of the Father, serving as our advocate, as our lawyer, so that Satan may not accuse us even for our failures, like our failure to pray as we should. And he is really clothed in majesty and might and power and authority and all glory forever and ever. Jesus really is sovereignly ordering all things. He really will come back to judge the living and the dead, to separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares. And he really will create a new heaven and a new earth where his light will be the light forever and ever. Do you believe this? Do you know this Jesus? If you don't, he invites you today. He invites you into his glory. You know, when I think about the beginning of this prayer, it sounds like a letter home from a, a son who is, you know, homesick. Dad, I miss you. I miss being at home with you. I want to come home and be with you. And that's, that's great. But he's not just going home by himself. He's trying to take as many brothers and sisters with him as possible when he goes. That could be you. Repent and believe. Let's pray. Father God, we, we need help to believe like we should. We need grace to forgive us when we don't, and we have it in your son Jesus. And we need the strength to pe press forward in light of our failures. And we have that as well. All of the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. And for that, we rejoice and we give him all the glory forever and ever. Amen.